Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. I, uh, you know, I thank you for the kind words. Uh, we, we hope that you're getting it right. Um, again, I, I wish that I could say something uh, more interesting or, or maybe more unique than, uh, you know, it's in the grapes, <laughs> as, we, as we discussed yesterday. And we yeah. said, hey, you know, it's mostly on the score. Uh, unless you're extremely talented as a conductor to transform three chords into emotion and something unique. Uh, it's a little bit what we have here. You know, I think the fruit that, uh, that we're getting is uh, we're not, first of all, we're not sparing any expense in the vineyard. And I think that's extremely important to, to farm to the highest possible levels. And um, that's something that is very generalized in Napa and that is becoming uh, true in Santa Barbara as well. There are, there are a few vineyards that are, that are farmed very, very carefully. And we want to, we want to be uh, on the tip of that and, and even more. So I spend a lot of my time in the vineyard in order to uh, get the best possible fruit. Our viticulture team, I tip my hat to them uh, because they're phenomenal. Uh, Juve Buenrostro is uh, an amazing guy um, and we work together into, into farming this place and he's got a tremendous sensitivity as well uh, for farming, for, for you know, viticulture uh, more than farming. So, so it's, it's a really magical, magical team that we have here and the attention to detail again, you know, those things that we keep on repeating and, and that might sound at some point that sound completely boring, but, but it, it's what makes the difference uh, ultimately. And uh, so yes, the vineyard uh, starts there and we were learning every year too. You know, I'm not afraid to say we need to know more. And, uh, and we'll, we're definitely putting a ton of efforts into understanding uh, anything from the, the water uptake, uh, water availability in our soils, the mineral content that we have in our soils, uh, the organic matter. We're brewing our own compost tea. We're trying to understand a little bit more the moisture, as I was describing, in, into the soil and how that's affecting the vines. We're kind of tweaking a little bit the nitrogen contents in the soil. So then at the end, the fruit that we're getting is a little bit more, uh, um, a little bit more concentrated. We're all trying to understand all the different phenolic profiles of our grapes. Hey, what's planted there on the hillside has a different profile than what's planted uh, at the foothill and why is that? Uh, so it's a tedious work, extremely fun, extremely entertaining. And I think we'll learn a lot and that uh, would enable us in the future to, to really uh, make, uh, make killer wines out there. Well, it sounds like you're doing a lot of great work and doting on your vines and really trying to find out everything and anything about what they tell you. Um, I found the piece about the hillside utterly fascinating. I was kind of trained, if you will, as a communicator on this mentality vis-a-vis -vis Napa Valley that the hillside vines struggle for nutrition and therefore produce very 
intense concentrated energetic berries, uh, which result, of course, in very interesting long-term age-worthy wines. Um, it sounds like there's a bit of that philosophy as well in Santa Barbara. I, I so applaud this boldness of going after what you want and, you know, not listening to naysayers, even if they have legitimate reasons. I mean, I've often felt like leadership, um, you know, examples like Daniel Dow and Pastor Robles that really turned the region, turned the attention of the world to the region, turned the region into premium producing Cabernet region. I think in Santa Barbara, it's highly necessary for a voice, perhaps Roger is that visionary that everyone would refer to 10, 20, 30 years from now. But even if he just creates his own world that makes sense to him, that produces world-class wine and, you know, really competes with the best Cabernet and Cabernet blends, I think that in that of itself is a huge achievement. I'm very excited for you. Yeah, you know, it's fun because I was in Bordeaux a couple of months ago at the university and I met my old teachers and... You know, when you said age-worthy Cabernets, that made me think about wines that you cannot drink right away. You have to wait because they're too tannic. And, and when I was in France, you know, like so oftentimes, like I even forgot about it, that the, 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 the professors at the university would tell us, what a great wine, but it's not ready yet. Like, what do you want me to do? Like, wait another five years? Like, we need to sell the wine now. And I want my, my, my clients, my customers to come back and order some more this year because it's so good that they want, they finished it. And that should be the goal of, every, of any winery. And then if it can age, and then if you can have it in 20 years, even better. But let's start with making it good today, mostly because I don't know what tomorrow will be made of too. So, uh, so it's just an interesting concept that I completely forgot because it's so anchored into our culture that almost to some extent, a few generations ago, the wines were undrinkable in their youth. So you would buy wines for your children uh, because you'd not be able to enjoy them within, within 20 years. So it's very interesting and hopefully we were able to make wines that drink a little better in their youth today and they, they definitely are going to last for a long time as well. So cheers to that. Is sure you French? <laughs> I fought so I fought so much during my last uh, last month in Bordeaux. It was freaking amazing. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. All those antique uh, concepts that, that we, we use that as excuses uh, oftentimes is, uh, is kind of super interesting. Well, another great one was, uh, oh yeah, we need to find another varietal to replace Merlot. I'm like, well, don't you have Cabernet? Yeah, but we cannot put Cabernet on its own. I was like, why? Well, because we blend Cabernet. I look at them, I'm like, well, we're doing just fine in California with, you know, 95%, 100% Cabernet. So uh, how about you make good Cabernet and start, start, start there, you know, start to make good, good lots, good wines, and, uh, and then you'll, you'll, you'll have the answer right there. I couldn't agree with you more. 
we definitely speak the same language. I've always been the proponent of that exact philosophy that you just articulated. Wine has to be inviting and delicious on release. It will change and evolve, but it will be different, not necessarily better in my book. So it's really important that it gets your attention from the get-go. Um, there are many examples in my own cellar that I've collected from Napa Valley that were quite mean for years, and some of them never really came around. Some wines from Howl Mountain, from Spring Mountain. Love the producers. Absolutely love them, but they were constructed uh, for very patient folk. I'm not one of them. I love instant gratification. And I also love the philosophy that you're not subjecting the consumer to you know, years and years of waiting in hopes that they get rewarded. Yeah, yeah. Do you imagine? Do you imagine saying, "Oh, I'm marrying this person, but not great today, but gonna be great in ten years." <laughs> that that'd be an interesting uh, you know image. Um, I'm gonna float a theory by you, which is. Mostly in jest, but I'm curious now that we got on the subject. Um, I know there's an awful lot of Bordeaux that was sold on futures and still is, but certainly, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was, you know, Everything. quite a lucrative proposition. People were purchasing and then reselling it subsequently. Um, it, I think it slowed down somewhat um, because the wine's gotten so expensive. So buying them in speculation is just not a financially savvy proposition, but it used to be a big thing. So some of the vintages of Bordeaux, of course, weren't quite as advantageous as others. You know, Bordeaux is not as blessed weather-wise as Napa Valley, for example. So, but the vintage still had to be sold. So I read some comments, particularly from British merchants that said, you know, wine doesn't necessarily need to be delicious. You know, all the vintages are different. You should celebrate the non-delicious ones. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I felt like it was a sales and marketing technique to explain that the wine is still worthy X amount of money because it came from, you know, a celebrated region, but it doesn't have to really taste good. We're not looking for that. Look the other way. Well, if some people like to inflict uh, pain upon themselves, good for them, you know? Why don't you just apply this concept to anything in life and just force you to listen to terrible music for hours and, uh, you know, eat terrible food and, and just... <laughs> Push that to just hang out with terrible people. Why not? You know, it's it, it just gives you perspective. You know, I, I don't know. It's funny. It's a very interesting concept. Thank you, Great Britain, again for uh, <laughs> for this. You know, some Brits really strike me at times as a little masochistic. Maybe that just fits into that. I'm not sure. I'm not a shrink, but no, certainly I think it's more than <laughs> Of course it is. Um, no, we, we love Great Britain. We love all of their wine shops and such like that. I just, and honestly, this is a reference to many moons ago. Things have changed dramatically. Just at the time as a young wine professional, I was reading the stuff um, and I was saying to myself, something doesn't seem right. It doesn't quite add up. Um, but anyhow, um, your wines clearly I built to last. I can't imagine you making wines that need to be trunk right away. And from what I tasted, that's not the case at all. I see a long future. No, um, I think the, the the concept about you know making age worthy wine is fairly simple. And for me, it's most mostly based on common sense. You know, wine has a frame, 
And the way you build that frame defines a lot the wine itself and its ageability. You know, if the frame is strong, then the wine can last for a long time. Now, if the frame is stronger, that doesn't mean that you need all that strength. You know, you'd imagine a car with a frame of a truck, uh, of a 48-footer truck, you know. You don't need that big for a car. So anything above a certain level is superfluous. Uh, that's when you start to talk about over extraction when you start to talk about those things, you kind of lack the balance. You've pushed the balance towards strength and aggressivity. So it's all about keeping that in mind. Once you reach, I think, good level, you don't need to keep on going to, um, to, to make it bigger because it won't make it bigger. It will make it more aggressive. And you will lose the emotion and the refinement out there. Um, you know, I think we all agree that the, the the best wines we've ever had are not necessarily the most powerful. Powerful is power is interesting, but it doesn't need to be in excess, right? You you need control out there, because if not, it's overpowering um, the wine, and uh, and and the wine is just loud and. Uh, and just like any type of music, you know, if you listen to it, it could be beautiful, but if you listen to it too loud uh, in the wrong context, it's not that uh, uh, enjoyable. You know, we can talk about music in a second, but I just want to make a comment that validates this point of view from, you know, my professional standpoint. And as a writer and an editor, you know, my holy grail is a good story. And a lot of stuff that I read um, kind of buries it. There's so much extraneous information that you lose the soul of it, the, the real nucleus of why this is worth reading and being engaged with. So I can relate so well to what you're describing. Even in my profession, I think it's so important that you're acutely aware of it. It just makes you so much more as a creator. Uh, we've been referencing music quite a bit. So I have a sense that you're not only a music lover, but you participate actively. Is that accurate? Uh, I do. I do. I try to. I try to. I'm a little bit uh, uh, guitar obsessed, um, but, but um, I, I love music. I, I love to jam with friends and I, I listen to all sorts of things. And, uh, and I take a lot of inspiration into music uh, to, to make wine. Uh, you know, Miles Davis said, it's about the notes you don't play. And I think that could apply to wine as well. You know, it's about, uh, uh, I think the, that sense of balance and, and finesse, you know, it's not about pushing it all the time. It's about kind of finding the equilibrium um, where, where that sits and, um, and it, it's good you know it's like it's like having a good band you know when you have a good band when you have good tools when you have a good uh, a good seller a good vineyard then it's definitely easier to play too right oh god yes uh, do you play bass guitar or no no electric uh, i mean acoustic and electric guitar yeah just curious but it's such a good segue into the vineyard and you've spoken so extensively about the importance, you know, it starts there, of course. And to me, every good winemaker is a vineyardist first and foremost. 
um, and you know that relationship that you have with those lovely plants that take so much patience and so much communication um, that deliver something so special at the end of the day. I mean, when you're describing your crew, clearly it's a dedicated bunch that really knows intimately by now. Okay. Um, every yeah. square inch. Right. I'm very proud about what they've achieved here. You know, the, the vineyard is, is second to none. You know, to be considered in Napa one of the one of the best managed vineyard. Um, and the other fun fact that I didn't mention about Crown Point uh, Estate is, you know, because we're one of the first here to do what we're doing, trying to make great wines. We're also trying to understand what is the best varietal. And, you know, that plays a big part. So early on, uh, Roger identified that, that Cabernet was the strongest. So we planted about 70% Cabernet from the get-go. We're planting a little bit more. But there was uh, the other 30% were shared in between uh, Merlot, Malbec, Cabernet Franc, and Petit Verdot. And uh, we have some old vines of Petit Verdot that are just outstanding. We have some old vines of Merlot that are outstanding as well. But in the meantime, we're trying to understand, hey, what type of Cabernet is the best? Because you've got different clones of Cabernet. There's, only, there's not only one type of Cabernet. It's like tomatoes, you know, if you will. You've got different types of tomatoes. You've got a small one, you have cherry tomatoes, you've got uh, heirloom tomatoes, and within the heirloom tomatoes, you have the green, you have the yellow. You get the, you get the idea. Uh, and, and with Cabernet, it's the same. So we have 15 different clones, so 15 different types of Cabernet planted here. And their origin goes back for, to Bordeaux. For some of them, they're coming from uh, iconic uh, chateaus such as Mouton, uh, such as uh, Rothschild, uh, I was saying Mouton Achille, but I was see Lafitte, I was, I was thinking, and uh, Margot. Uh, and, uh, and so those are the French clones, and they're extremely interesting. They're, they're really reliable, really high-end producers. But we also have the what we call the heritage California clones. These are clones that were brought to California a long time ago, and they've been identified in California to be very, very well suited for our climate. And I love those heritage clones, what they're able to bring. Um, they bring a personality, they bring uh, something that seemed to be to relate very, very well with our growing conditions. Um, I, I love the French clones, but also love the the California clones. Um, you know, it, it kind of relates to me a little bit. Uh, it's kind of funny. I never thought about that. But but it's true that there is something here that, that works really well with the C-clone, for example, that, that we have planted. On the French side, I really like uh, 169 that does really well. We have 191 that's very interesting. Um, it works really well into really rocky vineyards. Uh, we have 337 planted quite a bit. And then uh, Clone 4 works really well. Clone 8 works really well here. And those are heritage uh, uh, California clones. Then on the other varietal, um, 
Cabernet Franc could be really interesting. Um, but we planted our Cabernet Franc. The Cabernet Franc is young. And if with Cabernet Sauvignon, after seven years, you're already peaking in terms of quality, with Cap Franc, I think it, it's closer to 10 years. So our Cap Franc is young. It's about five-year-old. Still needs time. But we planted a bunch of suitcase clone. Uh, we planted the Vieux Chateau Sertan clone, VCC clone, on rooted, on, oddly enough. Apparently, and I don't want to jinx it, but apparently Phylloxera, I've heard, is not often present in Santa Barbara County. So we're able to, a lot of vineyards in Santa Barbara County are planted uh, on rooted. I believe because most of them are planted on sand where Phylloxera struggles. But we, we did a trial here. There's a trial that, that we're running and, and we have some uh, on rooted Cabernet Franc. It's very interesting. Um, the few unrooted wines I've tried over the years, for me, were very animal. They were very gamey. I was surprised that the European uh, vinifera vine rootstock uh, pushes the wines in that direction versus American rootstocks seem to bring more fruit forward in general to me when I try the wines uh, comparatively. So here, here it's not so much the case. Um, I'm still going to uh, investigate this a little bit more and see see how I feel. But uh, it's very, uh, you know, it's, it's very fun, and we're still learning. We're still going to plant some more varietals and, and see what what works the best for us. But there's nothing you cannot replace old vines, and and, and that's for sure. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. So clearly, you are a cab house. You have Bordeaux varietals planted, and I'm assuming they're making into the blend, and it's something you're developing. But this is kind of your mainstay. Are there plans for Chardonnay? Any other departures from the gap? No, because um, I'm not sure. You know, everything we do, we want to do it right. Yeah, and we want sense. we want to be true to ourselves too. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure that this is the right climate for Chardonnay. Uh, I, I love Chardonnay. That, that's one of my favorite wines to make. To uh, it's a, an art of its own, and it says so much about who you are as a winemaker by by the Chardonnays you make. But uh, I'm not sure it's really suited for us. We have some uh, we have some Sauvignon Blanc planted. Uh, we have the we have a California clone of Sauvignon Blanc, um, the, the 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 PM clone. Uh, I'll, I'll let you I'll let you figure yeah, out. <laughs> that could be that one. That could be that one. <laughs> Sorry, it just popped out. It didn't take you long. It didn't take you long. <laughs> and uh, and it's very interesting. It's very interesting. It's it's not like Napa, and it's uh, it's more Italian to some extent. Uh, there is more uh, power to the mouthfeel. It's very uh, you know suave. What comes to my mind. Uh, it's very lush, very texturally, very very interesting, and it's not necessarily the flavors of Sauvignon Blanc you would expect. And it's not the classic uh, passion fruit mix. There's something much more stone fruit into the Sauvignon Blanc. 
that is that surprises me very floral at the same time too but not typical varietal Sauvignon Blanc that, that you would expect. So Roger only wants to release it if, if it's the best Sauvignon Blanc he's ever had. Uh, I'm trying to convince him to do that because I think, I think the wine is very, very promising. Um, so, so soon maybe we'll have, uh, we'll have another wine into the portfolio of Sauvignon Blanc a little bit, but that's going to be uh, only, only two barrels. Well, he's releasing it to me. I will tell you that much. I'm a Sauvignon Blanc count, and now that I've learned about it, I'm going to be scratching well, it for at least well, eighty on it. I don't know if we would release it to me to start with. So, uh, I'd like to think that as a female, I can charm him. Or I mean, I will do every every underhanded female trick in the book. You know, bet my eyelashes because when you said the PM word, La Primidi is one of my favorite Sauvignon Blancs in the world. Yeah. I used to drink a lot of it. Um, and the only say the only reason I say used to is because I just can't afford it anymore. Um, but it's I think it's one of the most glorious examples of this varietal and as interpreted in Napa Valley. And it reminded me more of, you know, the classic Bordeaux blend texturally, like Sauvignon Le Semillon. Yeah. Because it has such a volume and body and texture and unctuous presence, but it also had this really sexy aromatics i've always loved it i love uh, i love i'm a, i'm a huge fan of uh, friuli sauvignon blanc blends and italian kind of the i love the italian approach on sauvignon blanc uh, and uh, there's something in the back of my mind that you know maybe one day we'll, we'll plant some malvasia here we'll plant uh um, you know, I, I don't know, a little bit of Semillon could work well, but, but something a little off the beaten path that could make the wine resonate. Um, and uh, we're still, uh, I believe that Semillon would work really, really well here. Um, but I, I'd love to see some, some Malvasia. Uh, I'd love Istriana. I'd love to see to see, you know, like a, like a vintage Tunina um, idea uh, in here. No, I would love to see you guys experiment with that and certainly that mindset that you have and the world travels that we discussed in the previous episode that prepared you so well because you're so, you've been exposed to so many different iterations yeah. of the grape in different wine regions and you have such natural curiosity that I think it just lends itself to producing something that's truly special. Um, for now, we have to be satisfied with the Cabernet. I know you make two wines, correct? Um, tell us a little bit more about them. Yeah, so we make two wines sold at the same price because we don't, we don't really have a, uh, a preference. Critics don't seem to have a preference. You know, oftentimes they're, they're scored and reviewed at, at, at the same. Um, uh, 96, 96, 97, 97, but, um, and, and that could also mean, well, then why don't you just make one wine? Yeah, but for us, they have two different personalities and, and we really want that. So we make the uh, estate selection, which represents what we have planted on property. It, it's very close to, to the acreage 
uh, bivarietal, the percentage bivarietal planted. So it's usually about 70% Cabernet Sauvignon uh, and then 8% uh, something like that of each of the other border varietals being Merlot, Malbec, Petit Verdot, uh, and Cabernet Franc. So that wine is usually, um, I hate to use the word feminine to describe a wine necessarily because it's, it's a little bit too cliche, but it's a little softer, a little more approachable uh, in its youth. Um, a more fruit-driven uh, flavor profile. And then we produce a Cabernet, Cabernet Sauvignon, which is usually around 95 plus percent Cabernet Sauvignon and then one barrel of Petit Verdot because Petit Verdot works really well with Cab in small quantities. So it's usually kind of the amount of uh, how much one barrel of Petit Verdot, how, how would that change the wine? But that wine, that Cabernet Sauvignon is very is much more Cabernet driven. So you have a little bit more tension typical of the varietal versus the estate selection showcases, oftentimes a little sweeter tannin. Um, and the Cabernet Sauvignon is very, you know, very spice driven, very leather driven, what you would expect from, from a beautiful Cabernet. The estate selection, more fruit forward. You know, yesterday we had... Uh, we had a estate selection with Roger and he was grilling some shrimp, beautiful shrimp on, on the grill, phenomenal stuff. And he pours me some estates and looks at me he's like, that's our Pinot killer. And, and, and the estate selection, you know, drinks as well as a Pinot, d despite being a, a Bordeaux blend, you know, and, and we, we could almost call it, there's a few years, like we could have called it cab because it's higher uh, a percentage of, of, I mean, still a high 70, 70, 75% of cab, but, um, but there's a, there's a softness to this wine that reminds us of, of Pinot Noir and there's a versatility to the way you can drink it. You know, you can drink, we, we had it with shrimp. You can have it with fish, no problem. You can have it with chicken. You could have it with no meats at all and just, uh, just vegetable. It drinks extremely well. It's a wine that is a, a no-brainer and um, and extremely you know extremely complex at the same time. So, uh, so I, I really like that from this wine that it's uh, a very versatile wine and uh, and oftentimes in the border family there there's not enough uh, of those wines. So it's it's kind of cool that we have it. And I'd like to I'd like to keep it that way, and then the Cabernet. You know, the Cabernet is what you'd expect from a from a great Cabernet. It's the complexity, it's the depth, the tension. Uh, there's something serious about this wine. You know, despite being it approachable and uh, and a very very high quality tannins as well. So it's it's kind of uh, what uh, you you have you have the complexity really with the cabernet because for me it's one of the varietals that catches the best the different changes the different you know um, special aspects of each blocks and of the property that we have here so i think it's it's the varietal that we want to keep focusing on uh, for the next few years as we're discovering what uh, what it can do here. Wow, how exciting. Um, of course, unfortunately, at the moment, um, 
we can't visit you. By we, I mean me. I'm chomping yeah, but, at the over here. <laughs> but it's going to change in short order. But soon, soon, yeah, we'll regroup and we'll organize things. You know, I think it's a tough time for everybody. Uh, and, um, but, you know, soon it will be over. And, and I think we'll, we'll look back onto everything here. And um, I, I hope we'll appreciate what, what it, how it pushed us to be yeah. more creative to kind of reinvent ourselves. Um, there's definitely some positive things to, you know, as a society to, to take away from this. Now, I love how the wine industry decided to suddenly connect with its consumers, you know, through Zoom, through uh, tastings, virtual tastings, through, uh, you know, Insta, Instagram lives, like, so, okay, let's, if, if you guys cannot come to us, let us come to you. And I, I could see it stay, you know, after that, you know, if, if we have people that want to have our wines, I don't know, in Illinois or, you know, far away from us and they want to check in, uh, but don't have the time to come to the winery. Hey, why don't we have a glass of wine together? Uh, we ship our wines to you. We'll sit down and we'll, we'll chat, you know, and, um, and I think it's pretty, that's pretty unique. Uh, that's pretty great. Uh, I could see, you know, anything for me that brings people to the glass of wine and wants to share about their experience with the wine. Hey, I think, you know, it, it's great. I'm not in this business to drink it all on my own. So uh, we're, we're here to share. I think that's wonderful and such a encouraging remarks. I mean, we're all obviously tired of the lockdown and all the negativity and such like that. So as things open up, I think there'll be this exodus when people are going to want to run around everywhere. So I know I can't wait to come and visit you in San Inez. And uh, those of you that have access to Santa Barbara County, if you live you know, within driving distance, I've seen some images of your property and it's stunning. Um, and obviously the wines, and I'm already biased since I've been very privileged to taste both of them. Um, I think that they're worth the trip alone. So I hope that you guys that are listening are inspired to come and see the property, have a chat with Simone because he's very accessible. And that's, again, you know, kind of unusual because it's not like you're not busy. But I know that you've shared with me in the past that you often, you know, hang out with guests and give them their you know, your personal attention and taste with them. Isn't that correct? Yeah, absolutely. That's something that is very interesting about Crown Point. Like we're a small team, you know, this is us. And um, when you come to the winery, you come to us. So we, we host you, uh, we spend time with you. Uh, if either Jennifer or myself, um, we have a tasting, which is super, super cool which uh, we call uh, past, uh, future, and present of Crown Points. So you try all the past vintages that we made and also the future ones, the ones that are still in barrel. And it's, it's a fairly long tasting. It's a couple hours, but we take you through the vineyard. We really share, you know, everything, everything we can about the place, about the wines. Um, and it, it's great. It's like, you know, you come to our house pretty much. Um, and we talk about anything, you know, from, from the dirt under our feet, the stones and how all of this shapes the wines that, that we're making, 
the property, the pond, the trouts, you know, the animals, the cranes that we have, the bullfrogs, uh, the coyotes, the dogs. We have two winery dogs. It's it's just it's just a such a fun place and uh, and it's an estate and that's what I love. You know that that idea of estate that, that it's not only about wine. It's about the people. It's about the environment. Um, but hey, so. My email is uh, simon at crownpointvineyards.com. So simon like Simon, simon at crownpointvineyards.com. That will do. And feel free to, you know, ask me uh, if you've got any, any thought or any questions, any feedbacks. So we, can, we can be in touch. And come and visit us at, at Crown Point. Our website is uh, crownpointvineyards.com. And uh, you can be in touch, you know, if you want to purchase the wines directly from us. Uh, if you have any questions about uh, about us, feel free to reach out. So cheers. That's a fantastic offer. Absolutely big cheers to that. And I cannot wait to visit you myself and have more in-depth conversations to geek out with you, but also just to have fun because wine at the end of the day is about pleasure. Oh yeah, 100%. Thank you thank very you much. 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 It's been great being with you. Likewise. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palette Exposure featuring Alona Thompson. We'll see you again next week.